Hello and welcome to another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm one of your co-hosts, Shobna Xavier. Thank you so much for joining us today, and I hope you are all uh, safe and well. In each new book of New Books in Islamic Studies, we feature um, an author of a new book that has been published and is relevant to the field of Islamic studies as it's broadly defined. And today we have with us um, Kiara Formiki, who is the Associate Professor in Southeast Asian Studies in the Department of Asian Studies at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. Challenging the geographical narrative of the history of Islam, uh, Kiara Formiki's new book, Islam in Asia, a History, which is published by Cambridge University Press, helps us to rethink how we tell the story of Islam and the lived expressions of Muslims without privileging certain linguistic, cultural, and geographical realities. Focusing on themes of reform, political Islamism, Sufism, gender, as well as a rich array of material culture, such as sacred spaces and art, the book maps the development of Islam in Asia, such as in Kashmir, Indonesia, Malaysia, and China, and much more. It considers both transnational and transregional ebbs and flows that have defined the expansion and institutionalization of Islam in Asia while attending to factors such as ethnicity, linguistic identity, and even food cultures as important realities that have informed the translation of Islam into new regions. It is the convergence and conversation between the local and foreign, or better yet, between the theoretical notions of center and periphery of Islam and Muslim societies that are dismantled in the book, defying any notions of Asian expressions of Islam as a derivative reality. The book is accessibly written and will be extremely useful in any undergraduate or graduate courses on Islam, Islam in Asia, or political Islam. The book will also be of interest to those who work on Islamic studies and Asia studies as well. In our conversation today, we spoke about um, the methodological process uh, that took to write the book, as well as some of the historical realities of how Islam came to Asia, um, as well as discussions of Sufism and the ways in which the book can be deployed in undergraduate courses in your own classes. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Professor Kiara Formiki about her new book, Islam in Asia, A History. Hi, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we have a tradition in New Books in Islamic Studies that we have um, asked the authors to share something about their intellectual journey and what brought them to writing their book. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what led you to writing this um, great book, Islam in Asia, and what got you interested in the topic. Um, thank you. This is, um, on my end, this is always a kind of fun question of what brings you to a project or to an actual final um, final product. Um, so this book largely came out of my own frustrations um, as a student, a scholar, a teacher, and more personally, or you know, um, as an art enthusiast. I'm not definitely not an art expert, but I enjoy going to museums, and um, and it was something about the way in which Islamic art and art from Southeast Asia never seemed to come together um, in any of the museums that I'd come to um, to visit. Um, and so over, at this point, almost 20 years, all of these uh, frustrations kind of culminated um, in um, losing my amazing editor at Cambridge, finding me and asking me whether I wanted to write um, a book, largely based on my research interests and my methodological concerns or interests in, um, in bringing together Islamic studies and Asian studies. Um, so... Um, 
For me, this multi-pronged approach to my frustration is really was really important as I moved forward in thinking and writing the book, because um, as I felt that I experienced it from all sides. So as a student, I remember um, deciding to turn towards Southeast Asian studies as an Islamic studies major in Italy, and um, I was really left without much guidance, um, and also a sense that was not very pleasant. Um, it sense that my questions um, were beyond the pursuit of what Islamic studies stands for, because Indonesia was so far east um, that does not did not belong to what we were doing in the classroom. Um, then I, I moved on and um, I started working on my master's and then PhD in London and researching political Islam and you know practices and ideas of Islamic statehood in colonial Indonesia. I came to realize that these realities were really excluded by broader discussions of Islamic statehood. Um, and this was until the 2002 Bali bombings, um, which then was seen as a follow-up to the 9-11 uh, attacks in New York City and D.C. Um, and so brought the discussion over Islam in Indonesia under this new, um, I don't know, maybe it's harsh to call it a new fad, but um, a new trend in thinking in terms of um, uh, terrorism and connecting militant Muslims all over the world, um, one to the other under the big label of, um, of the Taliban or um, Osama bin Laden's interest. So we went from a Gersian paradigm of Islam in Indonesia is ultimately syncretic and not really Islamic to these are the most fundamentalist um, Muslims we can, we can find. Um, and so that was my second layer of frustration. Um, and then when I started teaching courses on Islam in Asia, uh, both in Hong Kong and then later in the States, I really couldn't find approachable uh, books uh, to assign or even scholarship in general. Um, you know, when we get the student evaluations at the end of the semester, um, I would always get tons of comments like, um, there's too many readings, they're too hard, they're too dense, they're too specific. Um, and so that was another another element of figuring that there hadn't, um, it had been such a specialized discourse to think differently about Islam and Southeast Asia, or even Asia more generally, um, that I could find amazing scholarship, niche scholarship, specialized scholarship, but not something that I could, um, I could assign my students. Uh, or that could be an entry point for people, uh, colleagues and graduate students who were interested in rethinking these frameworks. Um, and so ultimately, I'm just glad that something good came out of years of frustration. Uh, and uh, the, the outcome of this was, was a book that I framed um, as wanting to well, impact, maybe shape, I don't know, that we all have very high hopes um, for, um, for our scholarship. But really the way in which these three sets of readers um, might approach the subjects of Islam in Asia um, in relation one to the other. So there's Islamic studies people, uh, the Asian studies people, and then general readers and students who are, um, you know, not that it's a tabula rasa, but, you know, they are as close as possible to that when it comes to uh, scholarly uh, debates and infights. Um, yeah, so I... I it was a book that came out of frustration, ultimately. Yeah, and I, I love that it was dedicated to your students. 
Um, and I think that really kind of expresses what the intention of the book was and the, the accessibility and um, um, what you've produced. So I'm really excited to talk to you about it. And I'm glad that you did something with your frustration. Um, <laughs> Um, can you tell us a little bit about like your methodological process? I'm always interested in hearing from scholars how they go about um, like, you know, their methods in a book and especially in a book like this where you are engaging in Islamic studies and um, Asian studies. Um, and I was really amazed with like the pictures that you included, your engagement with material culture and primary sources as well. So what was that process like in bringing together these sources for this book? Um, so this is a great question. Um... First of all, I think it took um, a lot of a lot of effort in managing my imposter syndrome um, because I am, you know, throughout the book, about eighty percent of the time, I'm outside of um, I'm a comfort zone, uh, outside of the areas that I know best, both as as an individual and as a scholar. So my primary, absolute, most niche way of thinking about my expertise is political Islam in late colonial Java. And, you know, that when you look at it in a book, it was really hard to limit it. But, you know, it's maybe, I don't know, four pages total of a 200, 200 plus pages book. Um, so it was, um, to me, there was a lot of mapping that had to happen, uh, mapping of the scholarship, um, and um, mapping up what questions to ask and how to answer them, especially to go back to the point that you made about accessibility. Um, and I'm glad that you that you thought that that was uh, something that did come across because I spent a lot of time thinking about my classroom experience as a teacher, uh, literally going back to, to my notes, the syllabi, uh, assignment questions, ways in which students answered my questions uh, in their journals or... Uh, you know, little margins on the side. I'm, I'm very much a pen and paper person. Um, you know, margins on the side of my on my class notes with questions the students have made through the through the session um, to see what um, what was important, what was harder to get through um, to them. Um, so there was a classroom experience. There was um, identifying the um, you know key questions and key nodes. Um, in both the Islamic Studies Scholarship um, and the Asian Studies Scholarship and see how they have been or have not been talking uh, to each other. Um, and this was, um, you know, challenging, engaging, and exciting, elating all of these different big feelings, I say, all at the same time. Uh, right before leaving sabbatical, I uh, actually returned, I think it was more than 400 books to the library and for months, I had just these piles and piles of books all over, all over my office. And I, um, I actually took one of my graduate students' uh, reading session to the, uh, to the to the university hotel's bar because I couldn't, I couldn't fathom clearing my desks uh, to make enough space for for people to sit around. It's just like there was so much trying to to figure out who was doing cutting edge scholarship and. Um, there is uh, this very large, I mean, isn't, and maybe we'll, we'll return to this question, to this issue later on. I didn't think that I was um, really breaking new grounds in, um, 
in talking about Asia as a as an Islamized space or a space of Islamized interaction, but um, because there is so much really good in-depth niche scholarship that allows me to make this larger approach argument, um, but it's so niche that often gets lost and people in adjoining fields uh, do not are not aware of it. And so that was... Uh, that was another really important aspect of the methodology, sort of really going to the library and browsing, physically browsing through the books, uh, going to random panels at conferences and uh, pinning friends and colleagues about what do you think is, you know, the most earth-shattering books that you have read recently um, that converse with long-established scholarship. Um but, and then there is the last bit of it, which is what uh, you were pointing at in um, in terms of seeing pictures that I've taken and references to uh, the primary sources, um, was the fact that I didn't want this to be um, a book completely dissociated from the life experience of Muslims in Asia. It is a history book, but... Uh, we all live... I grew up in Rome uh, and in Bali, actually, two places where history is everywhere uh, all the time and so history is something that we can live something that we can touch something that we experience we smell uh, we hear as we walk through and this is not i'm not making an argument for religions everywhere um, in a conservative sense in the sense that it's part of a place's landscape and soundscape so um some sections of the book like the section of muslim minorities um kind of draws from um, archival research I did in, um, in London uh, on Muslims in Arakan or Rakhine State, uh, today in Burma, Myanmar. Um, there is everything that relates to colonial Indonesia um, and then the impact of the Iranian Revolution of 1979 on Indonesia and Southeast Asia broadly um, comes also from my original research in these places. But then... There is also, as I was trying to say, this sense and this um, being able to, to live the, the, the things that I'm writing about, even though they're not my primary field of expertise. And so when I was working in Hong Kong, um, right before leaving, actually, um, I took um, a vacation trip uh, through China. So we took the train uh, out of Hong Kong and, uh, and traveled all the way to the Tarim Basin in Xinjiang. And, and it was just amazing to see this um, kind of, um, you know, living part of the Silk Road um, through which Islam um, and Muslims moved um, through the centuries, um, if not almost two millennia, and, and see the different architecture of mosques, different um, things that you buy in markets. And again, listening to the Azan, um, in different contexts. It was also Ramadan, it was Xinjiang in 2014, it was a very specific uh, political context. But it was so, um, I felt so lucky to have that opportunity um, and at the same time to try and bring it through the through the pages. Again, I'm definitely not China expert, but I like to think that, um, that having had that experience, the life uh, experience kind of brings something more to the um, uh, to to the book, to the scholarly grounded bookish grounded um, narrative. 
And I think that was definitely what was what is appealing about the book um, that I found that the that was the balance of, you know, the historical context, the primary context and the lived reality. And I thought that was um, phenomenal. And it's one of the things that kept making me want to read more and more. Um, knowing that you like, you know, knowing that you had taken the pictures and knowing the ways in which you are engaging with these different dimensions. And I wonder if you could talk about some of these, both, um, you know, at a meta level, but also some of the broader um, aims or interventions that you're trying to make. Um, and I think right now is an interesting time in Islamic studies. And, you know, there's all these interesting conversations going on um, on Twitter and on listservs in terms of what is Islamic studies. And so it was interesting to read your book in that in that kind of context, because, you know, the main intervention that you are trying to make is getting us to reshift how we even you know, um, chart or, you know, um, um, situate Islam in a geographical context. So can you help us to think about why this, this is such an important project in terms of trying to get people either in Asian studies or Islamic studies to rethink their projects and what they're doing and who they're having conversations with? Um, thank you. Um, well, so I think the, the first real problem is that there hasn't been a conversation um, for so very long. I mean, this is uh, the separation of what we consider Islamic studies and what we consider Asian studies goes back to colonial times and it was rehashed and reinforced uh, in very in, in many places around the world. I mean, both in um, academic world, both, both in Europe and in the United States by the way in which academic structures and academic fundings, uh, institutions are organized. But we see a clear um, polarization in a way of an um, equivalence being made between um, Islamic studies as being grounded in, um, out of the Arabic language, scriptural sources and early historical experiences, uh, but also more recent 20th century um, experiences in the larger Middle East and North African region, um, with North Africa also itself being often marginalized as uh, being on the fringe, um, and Asian studies, when we enter the realm of religions, um, thinking of religious studies to think about Asian religions as um, Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, animism, all these um, traditions that were turned into isms um, during the colonial period, and we don't seem to have gotten beyond that. So going back to what I was um, hinting at in terms of museum galleries, um, if we think about the, the new Met galleries uh, in New York City, the Louvre uh, recently renovated uh, Islamic art galleries, um, the everything that belongs to the Islamic art category is originates from the greater Middle Eastern region. And even when we talk about South Asia or Western China, it's with an eye towards, um, it's either with an eye towards, oh, these things look just like stuff that the people in, Middle, in the Middle East are doing, or this is so exotic. Um, of course, we don't use these terms anymore, but this subtext is so strong still now. Um, and if you know students um, enrolling in classes on Asian religions are not exposed to Islam, but not even Christianity or Judaism, even though these are very important religious traditions that have been present in Asia 
for centuries. Um, so I feel very torn because on the one hand, I feel that what I'm saying is not earth shattering. As I said, I mean, my, my position doesn't even sound new to me um, anymore, but I'm constantly surprised negatively, admittedly, um, by how the paradigm has just been held on to, um, both by Islamic studies scholars who work on the scriptures and Asian studies scholars who do not specialize on Islam and so think about Islam as a recent phenomenon and having to dig um, below the surface of Islam or Christianity in the Philippines, for example, to find, or China for that matter, to find the authentical, uh, the authentic religious tradition and spiritual tradition of these Asian peoples. I mean, it's so, um, and um, I said, I don't want to sound demeaning or uh, disparaging in, in any way, but um, I sometimes find that much of the nuance that as scholars were able to get lost in this uh, broader classifications of Title VI fundings in the U.S., for example, or departmental um, uh, departmental historical um, framings. So what I'm really um, hoping for, and you know, this is a very high hope, and uh, I I feel that I'm putting my um, my humble self aside. But what I'm really hoping to do, what I envision to do with this book, is to advance a clear enough image of Asia as a cohesive space of Islamized interaction. These are expressions that, that come up throughout the book, um, maybe too often, but um, to me were um, easy, memorable uh, expressions to get back to, to see how all these disparate um historical, geographical examples uh, feed into a, a broader conceptual framework um, in which there are no centers and no peripheries. So um, I think these four themes are, on the one hand, there is the intra-Asian connections. So um, this movement of people and ideas and goods, material objects that connected the east shore of the Mediterranean to the west shore of the Pacific, uh, whether it was overland or... Uh, by sea. Um, then there is this conversation between that which is transregional and then later transnational uh, and the local. And this a conversation uh, sometimes is paused, you know, like an old couple that is no longer listening uh, to each other. Uh, um, and sometimes it's very active, like it can be quarreling or it can be extremely engaged. Um, but it's, in that sense, I think it's really like a conversation. Um, then we have the, the the influences, the various influences that Muslims who are who originate from the so-called peripheries or live in the so-called peripheries, uh, uh, the ways in which they have influenced those are at the center. If you could see me, you see a lot of air quoting here in terms of periphery, center, uh, local, and all these categories. Um, and then did you a contextualized orthodoxy or orthopraxy? Um, so I think that there are these four major themes that through any single chapter, most at least you find three out of four um, in all of the chapters, um, trying to pull and draw this uh, hopefully vivid and imaginable picture of Asia as a cohesive space of Islamized interaction. And this doesn't mean that everybody was converting right and left. It just means that Muslims and certain practices that 
uh, were somehow inspired by Islamic beliefs. We're everywhere. And these, um, and so going back to the big picture question, um, what I was really hoping was that by not just making a theoretical or approach argument devoid of um, historical geographical context, and this is such a you know niche argument that you can make for certain people who live at a certain time in a certain place, but instead drawing from historical exp- uh, examples from across uh, Asia, very broadly understood, and across time, usually from the ninth century up to today, uh, you know, maybe I can shape or reshape, re, um, redirect uh, the way in which Islamic studies people and Asian studies people, uh, which are incidentally my people, I feel I have a very split identity here with training in, in both fields, um, can approach the subjects of Islam and Asia, not as two separate entities, but actually as two subjects, objects, actors, uh, arenas that have been talking to each other through the centuries, sometimes hearing each other, sometimes refusing to hear each other, but they are um, in in relation one to the other. They're correlated. And I think... Um, that's one of the things I really loved about the book is that the the story or the starting point is is you know in Asia and so what is it that we learn when we start there as opposed to always ending there like it seems to be very like you know the last point that some people might talk about when they are thinking about Islam but this is like no we're starting the story here and we're going to tell the story fully and I really appreciated that um for listeners who may not know um I know this may sound like a very basic question but it's something that you addressed at the beginning um how what's the expansion process of Islam to what we are speaking broadly about Asia um I know we've don't have time to go into like details of the different um, nation states that you're dealing with, but broadly, um, in terms of like commerce, and you mentioned the Silk Road earlier. What was the process in which Islam came to Asia? So this was um, so this is chapter one, which I titled uh, "Islam Across the Oxus," and uh, it was very daunting. So the the time frame of that first chapter is from the seventh to the seventeenth century, um, and. Um, you know, to boil it down to an actually readable chapter of, um, you know, about 30 pages was, um, again, was one of those challenges that um, um, that I was quite happy to undertake because I do it in class every year. I spend the first two classes um, trying to delineate um, the boundaries, the literal geographical boundaries uh, and trying to undo what we think and what students think the boundaries of Islam and the boundaries of Asia are. Um, so when I when I think in these terms, for me, it's um, it's important to center the story around Asia and realize that um, you know within even less than the first century from the revelation. Islam as a religious um, system, everyone referred to it in those terms, and Muslims as individuals had had reached 
had been living all over uh, the known world or the you know the known um, all over the geography that was reachable through travel and uh, trade. This is because as the Nestorian Christians, for example, had been present in um, in India and other on the Indian subcontinent and other parts of um, Central and Eastern Asia already before the um, the uh, Muhammad's revelation, people were extremely mobile. We we talk about globalization today, but of course we know that there is a phenomenon was just called pre-modern globalization. Um, so trade was an absolutely crucial element um, in the spread um, of Muslims in the out outward movement. Of, um, of Muslims. And here I've been also being very careful um, to make a number of distinctions in terms of uh, commerce versus military um, reach, uh, but also the difference between individuals who um, we know or we have historical records um, or material records of conversion and ways in which um, Muslim ideas and, again, practices that emerged from Islam percolated so many different arenas of individuals' lives and practices, especially when it comes to trade, for example, where we know that Islamic law has um, very specific requirements about how to conduct trade um, in an ethical and just manner, for example. Um, so, uh, kind of trying to rein back into the um, to the regional question, um, I think that commerce had the most impactful um, outcome in terms of the ways in which Islam arrived everywhere uh, and Muslims arrived everywhere. Um, the the military expansion um, was in that turn in. in in that frame, extremely limited, both in geographical reach and um, an impact. So as an undergraduate student, um, you know, in Italy, after in school, I learned all these things about the Crusades, uh, but nothing about Islam. For me, one of the deepest revelations um, was to realize that the Arab garrisons were kept separate from the conquered people's quarters. Um, all over North Africa and and the Middle East in the early or in West Asia, in the early decades of the of the expansion of the imperial expansion, and that conversion was not encouraged um, because the the Arab I mean what we ref- often refer to as the Islamic Empire was an Arab Empire was religiously and racially stratified, um, so Arab Muslims were at the top. And everybody else, everybody else had to keep to their quarters, had to work for the empire, but was not necessarily um, welcome to the club. And so much of the, and we know that much of the push to allow for conversion came from the eastern provinces where slave soldiers had been um, very active in the army and reached the their glass ceiling uh, of religious belonging. Um, and they were not able to further um, go up in the ranks because they were not Muslims. And so that's how in the early 8th century we start having um, more um, 
concessions for individuals to uh, to convert to Islam. So when we look any further than uh, than Khorasan, it's or or Afghanistan. Um, Conversion and was really exclusively, almost exclusively, a trade-related phenomenon. And it's also through trade that we have this back and forth uh, communication and exchanges on material culture. I keep going back to material culture because I find that very, um, very powerful to understand uh, so much of the dynamics that, um, that I try to flash out um, in the book. And I don't know, maybe the, the book cover also conveys that uh, the kind of approach. Um, but so without without trade, without exchanges along commercial and aesthetic um, ideas, I don't think that we would. Um, I think things would have proceeded in a very different way, and we could make history with ifs. Um, and since you brought up material culture, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit more, because um, I definitely enjoyed your conversations about it. And really, I think um, what was this interesting conversation with what was like localized cultural aesthetic and what was, I think, in some ways like seen as foreign, but foreign still, but maybe pivoting towards what was seen as an authentic Islamic aesthetic. So what was kind of that dynamic? And I know you had great examples, I think, from China, Java, Indonesia, Siam, or Thailand, and Central Asia. So, so many. So obviously we can't talk about all of them. But is there one that particularly st- stands out for you in terms of this exemplar of the dynamic that of um, Islam um, developing in this region and how that manifested in maybe a sacred space or other material culture? Yeah, sure. Thank you for uh, picking up on that. Uh, um, I think I might make two examples um, if I don't speak too long on the first one. Um, but also this illustrates some of the of the process and the myth, going back to the methodology that we were talking about earlier. Um, when I started really focusing on writing and conceptualizing the book, I was on a mini sabbatical in Singapore. Um, and... I was wandering around the um, the newly the then newly renovated galleries uh, of the Asia Civilization Museum, and I just stumbled upon this uh, white and blue plate from China, which had the Shahada inscribed and was decorated with pagodas and flowers, and and to me it was one of those aha moments that I also look uh, look for in my students whenever I take them to um, to our campus museum, uh, walking around the. West Asia galleries, um, this aha moment in seeing everything that I've been trying to put together crystallize in an object. Um, and so this is, to me, was a story of the of Muslim blue as um, that specific tone of blue had come to, to be known in many China. Um, that really brought everything together. So it had, it had a dimension of, um, um, of intra-Asia connections, um, through trade, but not trade that happened in a vacuum, was trade that happened um, as individual merchants um, who happened to be Muslim were looking for solutions to a uh, business, (laughs) um, to a business issue through their lens as as Muslims uh, because they wanted to sell more where 
in West Asia where um, political um, political shifts had uh, led to a, a to an expansion of the what today we would call the middle class. So people were buying luxury goods coming from China, but the, they had specific sensitivities, aesthetic and religious sensitivities. So they couldn't care for the very refined uh, Song Dynasty monochromatic uh, earthware. They just didn't like it. Um, they were used to beautiful colored earthware. And so this is how cobalt came to China uh, from uh, Anatolia and um, what is today Afghanistan and and was put um, to use by Chinese uh, kilners to produce this amazingly fine porcelain that incidentally uh, kilners in West Asia had not been able to achieve because their ovens were not hot enough. Um, but adapting it and using designs that have been brought in from West Asia um, is sort of mirroring um, calligraphic art and um, some other, sometimes it's geometrical or um, vine um, arabesque-like um, motives. And so having everything come together in this uh, material experience and experiment, in fact, that was so successful that ultimately we have the main vase is so quintessentially Chinese that we talk about Chinois City when we think about the death blue or um, other re-implementations of the white and blue ceramics into Europe in Holland as well as Italy and, and England, for example. So to me, this was the, um, this is the kind of entry points that I look for, that I looked for as I, as I anchor myself in, in images and I anchored a book on images and material culture. Um, and, and so uh, you mentioned specifically sacred spaces. Chapter two is largely, um, largely um, addresses this idea of becoming Muslim as an individual, but also as as space, as artists decorate, artists and general military commanders um, decorate um, these sacred spaces, and um, but also scholars write books, um, tran- culturally translating um, Islamic law in local frameworks and this is where i also hope to make a a theoretical intervention in the way in which we think about the conversation between the foreign and the local Um, i think that the term syncretism hybridity um, have been so overused and we got so used to to you we got used to using the, the term syncretism without thinking um, too much about the implications. And when we do, then we should, oh, let's just talk about hybridity because it sounds more neutral. But um, Stuart and Ernst had this amazing uh, short piece uh, flashing out why it's problematic to think about hybridity in terms of cultural and specifically religious terms because a hybrid cannot reproduce itself and assumes pure ancestry. And so we are assuming that there is a pure 
Islam and there is a pure Confucian, Hindu, Buddhist, animist, whatever substratum that meet and create something that we can recognize as a thing per se, but cannot reproduce itself is so specific that it lives as long as it can live and then it disappears. Um, so what I'm what I'm trying to do with this chapter is to really to think beyond that and there um, um, Barry Flood's idea of transculturation really comes in handy I think in terms about this conversation that is a translation that doesn't leave anything behind it kind of it, it embodies everything and again we see it in architecture and we see it in the way in which Islamic law treaties are written um, or poems are written um, and and again it's still and it's still there and happens everywhere not just in Asia but also in Arabia um, during uh, Muhammad's lifetime in which this conversation between the local and the foreign, even though on very different scale, still exists. So the way in which um, the Hajj ritual has come to be what is practiced today was a was a process of conversations, uh, was a conversation process between um, various practices that were happening in Mecca and around Mecca um, in the seventh century. And similarly, the way that we see mosques being built today, we assume that the dome and mirrors are what define, at least from the outside, what um, architecture define a mosque uh, as in its most authentic and um, pure standardized version. But that as and of itself drew so much from other experiences um, both from religious and, in fact, secular architecture um, in the early years of the empire, of the, of the Arab and Islamic empires. Um, so it's really important to keep in mind this, this conversation between local and foreign exists everywhere, in, existing in Damascus and um, in Fustat as well as um, in Java or, um, or Xi'an in, in China. Um, and so we see a, a mosque that looks like a pagoda and we think, oh, that's syncretic. That's a local adaptation. But we look at a mosque that has a dome and four minarets and we think that that's standard. But in fact, that is also um, the outcome of, is, is also a form of local adaptation. Um, and... Um, I love that framing. I think one of the things I wrote down in my notes was this phrase that we had a conversation and a conversion, conversation and convergence, um, be it between um, like law and the soul. So I think like this is an, a conversation that was happening between like the practice of Sufism and the fiqh tradition, or was it, you know, between kind of the spread of political Islamism or in practices around, you know, gender and women's body. And I think this kind of spread that you weave throughout and getting us to think and moving away from what you um, excellently, you know, said about um, the criticisms around hybridity and syncretism towards thinking about convergence, conversations, and flows um, was really productive. And I really appreciated that. Um, and I was taking a lot of notes on that as well as I was writing and reading the book. Um, 
can you say a little bit more about maybe um, this kind of dynamic and these um, conversations around maybe um, Sufism particularly, mainly because I'm interested in it? And, and how... I thought you might have been keen on yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally projecting. But, you know, one of the things that you do talk about throughout the book, um, it's, it's in the book, is on Sufism. Um, and really kind of similar dynamics in terms of like questions of authentic- authenticity, right? And questions of law and um, who's allowed to do what, right? And I think it, it comes up in all these different conversations, but Sufism and I think gender was the, these two kind of um, dynamics that were read throughout the book that I saw it coming up a lot. Yeah, so um, yeah, I kind of, I thought that might uh, be picked up <laughs> in today's conversation. Um, so yes, um, Again, going back to this idea of uh, breaking some strongly held dichotomies, um, you know, the center, periphery, uh, authentic, derivative, if not deviationist, there is definitely a good old dichotomy between um, the tariqa and the sharia, the the path of the soul and the path of the law, as if these two things existed, these two approaches existed um, as separate one from the other. Um, if not in opposition one to the other. And there is, uh, this is definitely not uh, something I specialize on specifically, but um, there is amazing literature out there, um, some of which has been featured uh, in on the New Box in Islam Studies podcast, really trying to, um, to undo this dichotomy. Um, and so I was very interested in trying to break down the conversation and convergence, indeed, uh, between the law and the soul, or the path of the law and the path of the soul, in a way that it could be um, easily understood. Because I find that, again, thinking about my classroom experience, um, you know, when students come in on day one of my um, Islam in Asia class, which is really now called something else uh, that is more marketable and attractive to students rather than Islam in Asia. I did not change the syllabus. Um, I just changed the title and enrollments just um, skyrocketed uh, just by calling it controversy and debate in Islam. Um, so we spent the very first session. Um, I asked them, what do you think uh, are the, you know, the, the hottest debates within Islam or controversies within Islam? What do you know about Islam? And, you know, people will say, oh, you know, there are some Muslims who are very spiritual, you know, the Sufis, the whirling dervishes, and then and there are people who are really close to the scriptures and, you know, and these are two ways of being Muslim. And so I, I was, and Abdul Wahhab and Wahhabism often comes up as a quintessential example of um, putative, uh, and perceived scriptural orthodoxy, whatever orthodoxy or orthopraxy mean, um, versus, again, the world and the wishes uh, of Koine. So um, I found talking about the Nakshbandiya extremely productive and to think about and talk about um, Sufi tariqas that embrace, but in fact require and kind of propose and uphold the the thinking that following the example of the prophet or following the example of the sheikhs is not, um, doesn't mean jettisoning 
um, the law. In fact, if we take the hadith as the source of behavior, then that also includes um, legal practice. Of course, this is also one specific way of thinking about Sufism that is not um, necessarily applicable to every single tariqa and to Sufi Muslims who don't necessarily belong to tariqa. So um, when, we, when I bring in examples, I know that what I'm trying to say is uh, often specific, but the Naqshbandiyya is a very large and impactful phenomenon. They're not the only tariqa um, uh, going back to this, um, to the importance of the hadith as being um, having multiple uh, um, uses, let's say, in the experience of the of the of the seeker, um, and so in a sense, going also back to Abdul Wahab, for me it was interesting to bring in Abdul Wahab in this conversation on um, on Sufism and Islamic and Islamic law, and saying so one of the individuals that we that would can, we feel that we can put the finger on by saying he was a scripturalist, he only believed that we should apply Islamic law as understood in a certain way, the scriptures understood in a certain way, in fact was deeply influenced by, uh, by Sufism, had, had been called, also referred to as, uh, as a teacher by others, and uh, followed individuals who were very well known and affirmed as Sufi scholar, uh, Sufi uh, sheikhs. So um, again, going on and trying to um, undo some of these um, of these assumptions. Um, but the, the example of Naqshbandiya to me does, uh, and for the book does um, also a number of other things uh, beyond the you know um, unhinging. And I'm very fond of the term unhinging. Uh, I know that it has. Uh, a connotation of uh, kind of being the rage, being uh, a little out of it, but I I think that um, thinking about unhinging this dichotomy um, does uh, does create discomfort in many of those who hold them uh, hold to them very strong. So um, and so kind of trying to unpack this dichotomy, um, it also points at the influence that Muslims from Asia have had through the centuries, not just in Asia, but all over the world. The Naqshbandiya today is present everywhere, including North America and Australia. But as early, you know, in the 15th century, and it starts off in Central Asia with, with a concern for the degradation of Muslims' practices. And so it has the same drive that many of the um, scripturalist reformers um, would have um, so this focus on silence the code and Islamic law, and then shortly after gets brought, um, uh, gets taken out of Central Asia, both east and west, and so it reaches the Tarim Basin and the Fergana Valley on on the east side, and reaches the Ottoman Empire on the on the west. Um, by the 17th century, we have uh, Naqshbandi sheikhs being popular in the sense of uh, influential and um, gathering many students in in India, in the subcontinent, and in Mecca. Um, and so we have this further move um, from Central South Asia towards the West, um, 
to uh, to Mecca as um, as a hub for Muslims all over the world who would come there to learn and study, attracted by the historical um, and um, devotional importance that Mecca holds, but also become becoming a receptacle for um, for Muslims um, with very different uh, with a variety of um, of life experiences and geographical um, origins. And so um, we have Arab scholars and non-Arab scholars learning and studying um, the Naqshbandi way and then going further out again onto, for example, Southeast Asia. And so the Naqshbandiya becomes a really important uh, way to, to look at the dynamic movement um, across Asia, out of Asia, and back into Asia of Muslims, and um, the role of Asian Muslims in shaping Islamic understanding and Islamic practices at the so-called center. Um, And the fact that orthodoxy or orthopraxy might look different in different places is contextual. Um, And and here also I lean heavily uh, on uh, Ahmed Shahab's uh, work on um, Muslim meaning making, right? Um, how can we define a standard orthodox or a standard orthopraxy? Um, so, um, and and it brings again this conversation between the the transregional uh, and global and the local as and of itself, because the Nashbandia stays as one tariqa, but also has many um, manifestations across um, across the globe. Um, I'm, I'm really mindful of your time since you've given us so much of it. So I wonder if in wrapping up, um, I'm really interested because in your thoughts of how you would deploy this book in a classroom. Um, you wrote it for that intention for your students in mind. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners or even myself um, would think of using sections of it or maybe the whole book and you know, the classes that we teach on Islam. So do you have any advice for us in terms of how that could go about? Uh, oh yes, I have plenty of advice on how you can use my book in your classes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but so um, I think there are maybe um, well two or three straightforward ways that the the material here could be used. Uh, one, uh, honestly, just as a textbook, and I personally, especially as uh, probably 2020, 2021 is likely to look um, is going to. It's extremely likely to be going in remote in some form. I think it's going to be really helpful to have one book that students can refer back to. So I'll be readjusting my syllabus to mirror more the structure of the book. Um, but I mean, in class, I would be saying the same things that I've written in the book. So um, for me, that's, that's kind of obvious. Uh, barring that, um, there, there are two things that could be done. Um, each chapter starts with an illustration and is um, and is usually paired either immediately or further in by a primary source. And so I think that the, this combination or even individually the illustration and the quote and or source could be um, very well deployed uh, either to start a conversation at the beginning of class uh, to show an image and ask students uh, what themes, what ideas, uh, what feelings uh, the image uh, brings up, 
but also as a prompt for students' reflections, um, sort of for a think-pair-share uh, in-class activity or for a journal activity. Um, I'm very fond of this kind of, uh, of activities in the class as I try to uh, not talk and lecture for 45 minutes. I'm sure you gather that I love talking, as most of us uh, do. Um, I don't think that students can really, uh, as we can't, uh, also as uh, colleagues and scholars, really listen to someone straight for 45 minutes uh, or 75 minutes for that matter. Um, And so using these, deploying these illustrations and primary sources as conversation starters um, or for reflection prompts. Um, and then another way is the, each chapter is really meant to be um, self-standing. Um, of course, there are um, cross-references across the book, but I've also writ- written each chapter thinking that it could be used uh, as an individual um, as an individual reading. It has each chapter has a section for further readings, which are um, usually the books that for me have been most influential. Um, in writing the chapter, but also that could be good avenues for further expanding some of the themes that I touch upon, or I try to not uh, to have a narrative that is too heavy on um, theoretical debates. But sometimes I put books in the further reading sections that uh, that are actually um, exploring the theoretical uh, debates in more uh, in more depth, and so I can imagine. There's chapters working for courses um, that may be widely different one from the other. I know we're just talking about Naqshbandiya networks. And of course, that can work, um, I think, very well uh, for a course that focuses on Sufism, but also a course that focuses on Islamic law, for example. Um, Chapter six, um, which is titled New Imaginations of Piety and focuses on the 1960s and 1990s. Um, could be um, for a class on political Islam, but also on religious minorities as the second half of the book, uh, of, the, of this specific chapter, um, explores um, religious minority settings. Um, there is a whole chapter on Islam as resistance, chapter seven, which... Um, uh, which really looks at um, at the anti-Soviet um, anti-Soviet resistance in Afghanistan starting 1979, and and then thinks in different ways about jihad. And this could be even used in a course on U.S. foreign policy. Um, in fact, because there is so much that is still going on uh, related um, to um, related related to Afghanistan that goes back to those years, to the 1980s, for example. Um, I would love to see um, the early chapters of the book on the Islamic, on the, you know, Islam across the axis or becoming Muslim being incorporated in Islamic civ, very traditional modules, as I think that they are a lot more approachable uh, in the way they're written than Marshall Hudson's The Venture of Islam or even Ira Lapidus' um, um, text, which I personally use as an undergraduate student uh, in Italian translation, but um, I find that sometimes uh, the level of detail um, that that it goes into, so one is extremely detailed, the other one is extremely theoretical, it might be daunting one way or another for undergraduate students, so um, that these are just some of the ways that I think uh, it could work. 
I mean, you've done a great service for um, those of us who teach Islam in any capacity for undergrad students um, and even for grad students. So it's like phenomenal. Um, and I know um, myself and many others would be really, really grateful and thankful to have your book um, to be able to utilize in the classroom. Um, as we wrap up our time, I wonder if you could let us know, I mean, hopefully you're taking a break after you've written this amazing book, but are there things that you're thinking about or maybe have um, hoping to be working on when things are settled, if ever? Um, what, what are new projects on the horizon? Right. So, no, of course, there is no resting. Uh, all of the last <laughs> phase of this book happened during sabbatical. So I've been on sabbatical for the whole academic year, which was great um, and a little disappointing because, of course, with the current pandemic situation, um, I haven't been doing I haven't been able to do much of the traveling and archival research that I wanted to do. But um, so that has been intellectually very stimulating nonetheless. Um, so I have one project uh, that is in the pipeline and is very closely related to Islam in Asia, um, which is the Routledge Handbook of Islam in Asia, um, which I'm editing, and I have some amazing contributors uh, uh, I'm working with, including, um, of course, you and, uh, and some a bunch of other people who have been featured on the podcast. So I'm really excited going back to the earlier conversation about you know um, how timely the the debate is in scholarly terms about what is Islamic studies. Um, I'm really hoping that um, even though we are in the very early stages of the of the handbook, that this can contribute to that conversation even even further. Um, but then uh, the I'm also working on on a project that is much more into my usual comfort zone uh, of colonial Java and Sumatra. This is a little bit of a jumble, but I think I have a I don't know, one or two minute pitch that I can I can try, um, even though you know I'm a total post sabbatical chaos of everything's interesting. I want to do everything, um, <laughs> kind of feeling. But um, what I'm what I'm trying to look at is um, ways in which modernity was framed as connected to ideas uh, and ideals, in fact, of hygiene, health, and nutrition um, in colonial Indonesia. But I also see a continuity from the colonial Dutch authority onto the Japanese occupation and the early post-colonial Republican uh, years. And I am uh, partly as an outcome of this project, which uh, got me a lot more um, to read a lot more on um, women's studies and gender studies. Uh, my focus here is going to be on the role of women in executing these modernizing policies in the homes and in the villages first, but then also becoming extremely important on the public sphere um, because of the um, rather surprising but also necessary role of the Japanese occupation um, authority that um, had sent most of the men either to uh, to work to um, to build railways or to die on the um, uh, to die you know, uh, on the battlefield, and so only uh, Javanese women and Sumatran women were left uh, behind. They were trained as nurses, midwives, but also doctors and nutritionists. And so creating this um, uh, this cohort of highly or fairly highly trained women who are then who then become executors of um, Republican policies of health and the modernizing developmentalist agenda. Um, so deploying their um, 
their field of expertise that, that, that would have been labeled as domestic and traditional as, in fact, um, for and within the structures of the state and state institutions for uh, the, the practical and um, institutionalized modernization of the state. There's a lot of food talk. There is a lot of discussion on what modern modern motherhood uh, looked like for indigenous middle-class women um, in Java and Sumatra in relation to traditional practices. There is, and then there is Islam, um, which um, which is sort of in, everywhere in, in the book and nowhere specific because it interacted the whole time, converse, going back to these ideal conversations with Western frames of modernity, um, but also um, in shaping early manifestations and early surfacing of halal claims for processed foods. And we go back to the fact there is a lot of food talk and hygiene and how we go from um, really the mantra of hygiene, health, and move on to halal in the 1920s, 1930s um, Java. That sounds very exciting. Um, I hope I get to talk to you about that. And I'm very also excited, needless to say, of you know being involved with the, the handbook as well. So thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, I'm so grateful for our time, um, especially considering the circumstances. And I know you have so much going on. So thank you so much. And also your family for making this possible for us to have a yes, conversation. Um, and I look forward to future conversations. Thank you again so much for joining us. Absolutely. It was a it was a great pleasure and it was great to have a, a good reason to go back to the book after I haven't been wanting to look at it since I had to go through the proofs. <laughs> it's it's a fantastic book and it's gonna everyone's gonna be excited about it. So I'm really happy we got to chat about it. Thank you. And that was my conversation with Professor Kiara Formiki about her new book, Islam in Asia, a history. Thank you so much for joining us and listening to our podcast as always. And I wish you much safety and good health in the days ahead. Take good care.